Lifestyle matters. It's more than money. Well, Dave. No facial today, huh? No, I'm filling in. Yeah. Small small shoes, big yeah. shoes? No, big shoes. Appreciate big it. Shoes. Appreciate Well, you're so much bigger than his, that's <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Well, it's good to be here. Uh, lots happening in the markets, lots happening in a shortened trading week. So we'll kind of get to some highlights on on what, you know, what that means. Yeah. Um, we've got it. I think we've got an interesting show today, aside from just the market commentary. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the legacy bucket, a couple of aspects, mm -hmm. right? Uh, there's been some instances recently we've talked to people uh, where they're having some conflict with their executor on an estate. Um, you know, what happens if you get into that situation and you want to try to, you don't think that person is doing a good job and you want to have them removed? It's not a simple process. So we're going to go mm -hmm. through and explore that a little bit with Catherine Zhang. And we're also going to talk a little bit about trust because trusts are something that come up often in conversation. And right. I don't think there's generally a good understanding of what trusts are. They're flexible tools. They can be used at multiple points for, for very different things. And so we're going to try to shed a little bit of light on that. So you want to stick around, uh, you want to stick around for that. But let's, let's talk about this shortened trading week. Um, one of the things I, I noted is that uh, Canadian inflation was a bit of a surprise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, positive, down. Positive surprise. Mm -hmm. Opposite of what we saw in the United States, right? Yeah. So the yeah. U.S. numbers come in higher than expected. Uh, I would say the trend is still down, right? But higher than anticipated. And the Canadian numbers come in significantly, call it a half a percent below what was expected. Right. Um, I found that interesting. I, I did too. And it was interesting digging kind of deeper into the numbers and, and looking at that because there's some major allocations to those CPI yeah. numbers that we have to look deeper into. And we had energy prices down. Right. right? That brought it down. Um, but for the central bankers or for the Bank of Canada specifically, uh, what they're going to be looking at is not coming down. You know, this is going to be an interesting period of time because if, if you, you said the composition of the CPI, and one of the things that's, to me, very interesting is this idea of mortgage and shelter costs represents about, call it 30% of the CPI calculation, but it's about 50% of the current inflation rate. Mm -hmm. And so when you strip that out, you're going to see inflation, general inflation beyond that, sub 2%, right? right? Sub what the, the Bank of Canada wants. So you've got this, you've got this general uh, disinflation trend with the exception of the housing market. And I'm not saying that that's not a real cost to people, but the question that the central bank is going to have to ask itself is, does monetary policy dictate that if there's mm -hmm. a lack of supply and we've got high immigration is there anything that monetary policy or the bank of canada controls that can actually affect that and i, I don't think there is but it doesn't necessarily mean that and they certainly haven't you know acknowledged it the way we're acknowledging it right now so i i don't know what the what the the bank of canada is going to do if we continue to see the broader economy start to decelerate and inflation really start to come down but you've got this sticky shelter cost piece of the inflation that they can't fix. Mm -hmm. So Canada is going to be in a bit of a, an interesting, oops, an interesting position, I think, with respect to how the Bank of Canada is going to handle that. Well, the interesting position, too, that we're generally following Big Brother down south, too. Well, yeah, and there's that link, too, right? If we start dropping rates too far in advance of the United States, you're going to see the Canadian dollar collapsing. 
uh, you know, on a relative basis when you look at it versus the United States. So, it, yeah, it's it it's a little bit tricky. And people often ask me, you know, why do we always report on U.S. numbers? Well, these are the reasons. You know, the U.S. is the is the 800 pound gorilla in the zoo, and so we've got to we've got to really watch what's happening with that gorilla and what the impact will be on Canada. Because if we stray too far on some of these things, you know, our economy is going to be materially affected by that. And that's why the the U.S not just that it's our biggest trading party. I don't care where you are in the world. You have to watch what's happening yeah. in the United States. Okay. What about this, uh, this AI trade that uh, hit hard again uh, on what was it Thursday when the NVIDIA results came out? Oh, well, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, just blockbuster numbers. Mark- and there was a sell-off ahead of that, right? Yeah. Yeah. The right? market didn't expect that. That's right. Uh, blockbuster numbers, uh, profit margins increase, uh, capitalization on the company itself now at $2 trillion. Yeah. Um, to your point, the, you know, the, the top line, bottom line numbers were well ahead of expectation, but I think even more importantly, the signal going forward was this, this growth is going to continue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a really interesting day on Thursday, prop the markets uh, up in general terms, you certainly saw any AI-related big tech um, rallying in, in sympathy with that. Uh, so really quite fascinating. In general terms, I'd say uh, S&P 500 earnings numbers have come in pretty strong. Pretty strong. Right? NVIDIA's were, of course, the um, the highlight. But in general terms, I think it's somewhere around 76%, at least, that has uh, beat their earnings expectation. That's pretty much in line with historical expectations during any period. Um now you've got this this notion of interest rates, and and I think I just want to cover off this pretty quickly. Um, interest rates. The central banks have been uh, U.S. Fed. Let's talk about U.S. Fed guiding to a later in the year rate cut, and something in the order of three quarter point interest rate cuts in the United States. The the market up until recently, the bond market in particular, hasn't necessarily believed that analysis, and so what we have seen is interest rates moving a little bit higher. If you look at, say, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, moving a bit higher back in around that 4.3 uh, from a low of maybe 3.8%. Now, normally, when that happens, the uh, the reaction in the equity markets is to go lower. But that hasn't happened, right? We've hit new all-time highs again. Mm-hmm. What is it? You told me 12, 12, 12 new times. highs on the S&P 500 this year yeah. alone. Okay. So we keep pushing higher. And that's a bit of a, a uh, a conundrum in general sense, unless, unless you, you believe that interest rates are moving higher for good news reasons, because the economy is actually stronger than expected and it is withstanding this, right? So it's going to be a very interesting debate, you know, through the market price discovery over the next couple of quarters about what's going to happen. Is this a good news or a bad news story? The fact that interest rates are going to remain higher for longer, rate cuts may be fewer than what was anticipated. I don't know, let's call it two months ago. But here's what I can say is I think now the bond market, when I was looking at it uh, as of Friday morning, bond markets in the United States were pricing in, basically pricing out a May rate cut, pricing in about a 76% chance of a of a quarter point rate cut in June. Mm-hmm. And they're pricing about 79 basis points of total cuts next year. Now, if we think in terms of 25 basis points each time, that's a little bit more than three cuts. And so the bond market seems to be, in my opinion now, pretty much aligned with what the U.S. Fed right. has been guiding to. And I and I think that's generally going to be a good news story because it should take some of the volatility out of the bond markets 
which often ends up affecting the the stock markets. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting year. And I think it's an interesting one for individuals as they're watching. We didn't hear about the bond market this week. You watch it. You're the you're the scared guy. That's yeah. what Faisal calls you. Yeah. Right? It's interesting with the market hitting all-time highs. It'll come back into play. It'll come back into an interest rate conversation. And it's going to be a year of bond conversation one week, stock the next. Yeah, that's right. And and I think that 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 people, uh, it's not a one-way straight linear rise. So, um, you know, there'll be profit taking along the way and so on and so forth. And so, you know, I just, I think it's worth reminding people that it's been a pretty good start to the year so far. Mm -hmm. It's not a straight line up, you know, at certain points, there's going to be, you know, there's going to be those things like a simple profit taking that might drive markets down for a period. So, you know, just make sure that your your wealth strategy, your investment strategy is appropriate for the amount of up and down risk, you know, volatility that you can handle. And for what the what the what the goal is uh, as an outcome, you know, Rob, we get a lot of questions um, often when we're working in the legacy bucket with clients about trusts, mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot of confusion about what they are. So I think we need to help people understand what they are, and and then more importantly, why why would somebody use a trust, right? right. What where does it fit? What's it designed to do? What's it you know supposed to accomplish uh, within a total wealth plan? for a uh for a client or for a family and to help us understand that uh we've got a terrific guest uh, for two segments today uh the first one will be trust Catherine zhang who is a partner at walsh llp and a regular recurring guest of the show Catherine, thanks for joining us today it's a pleasure to be here thanks dave okay so you heard a little bit about that that setup um i think i'm just going to throw it to you right away Catherine, because we we get a lot of questions about trust people hear the word trust um, there's kind of a general understanding. Everybody thinks mm-hmm. it's some special magic tool. Maybe let's just start with telling us what a trust is and the different, you know, generally the different types of trusts there are. Yeah, well, that's a great question. I think um, the misconception about trusts is that there's only usually one type. Um, and that's that's the biggest misconception. There's a lot of different types of trust. So you can have a testamentary trust, uh, which is a trust that gets set up in a will. Uh, you can have an inter vivos trust, which is a trust that somebody sets up during their lifetime. Uh, and the intention is that they uh, transfer assets from their own personal um, bucket into uh, a new entity called a trust. Um, But then there are less complex types of trusts, and those are bare trusts, uh, where uh, you hold something on behalf of somebody, but there's no no real legal transference or beneficial transference of entitlements. You're just holding it in trust in name only. So those are, from a rough perspective, uh, a broad you know, explanation of some of the different types of trusts that there are. So I think that's a, that's a good explanation of Rob. Uh, You know, it raises the the point, I suppose, that, that we think of a trust as some one thing, right? Mm -hmm. Well, no, it's, it, it can be a legal entity. It can be a non-legal entity, um, you know, and it can, you know, be before, you know, while you're alive, after death, all these kinds of things. So it's a, it's a much more complex tool, right? Than I think most people just think about when they hear the, the word, trust. Yeah. I think it's an an interesting question too. And I might phrase this uh, back to Catherine because one of the conversations we have with clients is, well, the first question we get is, well, why can't we just use a trust? Right. Like when, when is it actually beneficial right. or how much money do I need to set one up? 
Right. right. And I know there's a lot of complexity on what kinds of trusts, but maybe you can go through your approach when talking with the client family. That's a fantastic question, Rob. Actually, I, I usually throw it back to the client when they ask me, hey, can I just set up a trust? This is what I've been told I should do by my friends and family. And my first question is always, well, what is your primary objective? Um, because depending on what your primary objective is, a trust may not be the right vehicle. Um, if we're talking about protection of assets, then often there's something there because in a trust document, you're able to very specifically outline, um, you know, what conditions money can be taken out, income or capital, who can be entitled to that money, um, and gift over provisions if one of the beneficiaries listed has passed away. Um, a lot of times people come back, though, and they say, well, actually, it's for tax purposes. I'd like to minimize my tax exposure. I have certain assets that I want to transfer over, et cetera, et cetera. And depending on the, uh, the province that you're in, uh, sometimes a trust is a viable way to approach that or is a viable solution. Um, particularly here in Alberta, a lot of people are concerned about the transfer of assets on death. Um, but here in Alberta, we've got um, right now a really good probate structure um, where it the the cost of applying for a probate or the cost that you're going to encounter in the court is not based on a percentage. So um, often when we raise that with clients, they say, oh, well, I didn't realize that. Um, you know, if, if there's a way for me then to transfer assets without being being penalized or being um, charged on a percentage basis, and I'm able to outline what my wishes are in a will, maybe I'm okay. Um, but if we're dealing with, you know, um, spouses uh, from a second marriage, or we're dealing with dependent adult children, um, or we're dealing with very specific um, distribution of particular assets through multiple generations, maybe in those instances, trusts are something uh, that those clients can, can, can and should consider. So Catherine, there's, there's a difference between setting a trust up in your lifetime and, and setting one up um, you know, upon passing, your passing or second passing of your spouse. Um, and there's different, uh, there's different uh, approaches for this. Maybe let's, because we're going to talk a, a little bit about executors in just a minute uh, after the break. But tell us a little about this use of a testamentary trust, uh, you know, a trust that you establish in your will. Um, I often get asked questions, you know, is there a cost to set up a testamentary trust? And, you know, when is it in effect? How does it work? When would I consider putting a trust in my will? Uh, those are great questions. So um, the first answer is the trust gets set up in your will. There's no other documentation that you need. Um, so when you meet up with a lawyer to draft your will um, and you say, hey, on my death, I want to give this gift on certain conditions, we're talking about testamentary trusts. And so the only discussion about added cost is the complexity of those instructions. Um, a lot of the times um, for really straightforward trust, hey, if my children are under a certain age, I don't want them to get access to the funds. Um, I want them only to get access when you know they're 25, or I only want them to get access in stages. Those are um, pretty straightforward and 
typically at Walsh, they're, they're not added costs uh, to that type of trust. Uh, but if we're doing something specific, you have a dependent adult and we need a discretionary Henson trust, for example, uh, to take into consider other aspects uh, that this adult is going through that might incur an additional cost. Uh, but there's nothing um, there's nothing uh, that is required after your passing to to fully constitute that document. It, it's already baked into the will. Um, and then if uh, if somebody's well, let me ask you this question in, in just in general terms. And and I think it's important that, it, you know, you we speak often about an Alberta case. Uh, the provincial laws are all very different. Um, with respect to these things. So depending on what province you're in, make sure you're getting the proper legal advice if you're thinking of setting these things up. What percentage, like if you were to, to take a guess, what percentage of people uh, that you do will in estate planning for really have a need uh, for, for, for trust aside from minor children? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, well, let me put it this way. I would say a significant amount of my wills will contain a trust in some form or other. Um, if you're not dealing with minor children, we've also, we've often got um, uh, couples who are coming in or individuals who are coming in who are then grandparents. And so they're saying, if my child doesn't receive their share of the estate, but they've got kids, then their share is going down to their grandkids. And so it's it's a simple, okay, well, if that grandchild is entitled to something, they're not they're not able to receive it until they're 21 or 25, for example. So um, in that respect, I would say a significant portion of the wills that I do will have a trust in some form of or another, but certainly it's not a requirement, particularly if you don't have minor kids that you're caring for and you're okay with your asset uh, being distributed to a beneficiary and then them having full and complete control of that asset on your passing. Yeah, I think that's that's important. And I, I think most people, um, I asked that question because I, I thought the answer would be, there'd be lots. Certainly if you put in, you know, minor children, it's actually a pretty common planning tool for, for most families. When you get into some of the other complexities, I think it gets a little bit um, more uh, uh, selective and a little bit uh, mm-hmm. rarer to use it. But they're really flexible tools. Uh, and I think the important piece is if if anything in this segment has caught your attention, then go speak with your, you know, the person that you work with on your wills and estates and, and to make sure that a trust, uh, you know, is appropriate or not appropriate in your given circumstances. Right. And so, Catherine, thank you again on a, a pretty complicated topic. I think you do a fantastic job of making it understandable for guys like uh, guys like us. It's a pleasure to speak with you always. We talk often a lot of what we have done a number of shows in the past with Catherine actually about the position of executor. Um, And we've talked often from the perspective of if you're the executor, what are the Mm -hmm. responsibilities? If you don't want to be the executor, what do you have to do? But what happens if you've got an executor? So you're, say, a beneficiary of a will or you're a co-executor and uh, you want to remove the executor or the other executor Mm -hmm. that you're co-with. That can be a complicated and tricky process as well. Um, and to help us understand a little bit about that, um, as I said, Catherine Zhang has stuck around. Catherine, thanks sir, uh, you know, for sticking around over the break and, uh, and tackling this topic with us. Um, I just want to say before we get going, um, we're often speaking in terms of Alberta legislation, and it's just important to note 
that if you're listening in a different province, please make sure you get proper legal advice in the province that you're in, because the laws can often be quite different. So having said that, Catherine, I'm going to throw it to you. Um, what if you're in a situation where somebody's administering your estate as the executor and um, you don't necessarily think they're doing a very good job? That sounds to me like a bit of a tricky deal to maybe make a change there. Absolutely. Um, you know, part of the, the first tricky part is if they've already been appointed as an executor, there are going to be some extra steps that everybody needs to take uh, before that person can be removed. Um, if you are a beneficiary or you're an interested party of the estate or you're a co-executor and you're not quite happy with how things are going, um, I usually always recommend that um, you end up contacting either the executor that you have questions about directly or through their lawyer if they're working through a lawyer and outlining what those concerns are um, and asking for the information very clearly um, that you're seeking or that you feel like you haven't received up to date. Uh, sometimes um, the issue is about the length of time things are uh, things have taken and um, sometimes those things are out of an executor's control. So uh, that's one of the things you have to evaluate when um, when you're seeking for that information is, is it possible for the personal representative or the executor to actually provide that information? Um, if, however, you know, and you feel that sufficient time has passed and you're still not um, satisfied with the responses that you're getting, then yeah, the first step would be to make sure you've communicated um, uh, your your requests for information and then um, probably I would suggest to seek legal advice as to what your next steps could be because sometimes you just don't know what you don't know and if you go um, to seek legal advice um, that lawyer might say well this this is actually quite normal in the process or that lawyer might step up and say well no this is unacceptable the amount of time or the non-disclosure or you know, the things that have been happening in this estate, let's work with you to make sure that you get that information. Um, and so that could look like various things, uh, but failing communication between two lawyers, um, there is always the application to court. Um, and as a beneficiary of the estate, a residuary beneficiary of the state, you often have the ability to make a request um, for an accounting up to date. And so um, that could could look like a request for an informal account where you know where the two parties work together or um, if things are looking um, really up in the air and you really like think you really have questions about what has happened in the estate you could request a formal accounting um, and then if you're not satisfied at that point you could escalate it uh, to a situation where you're asking the court to discharge the executor because they have not done a good job now that's that's an interesting point and i'm going to get your opinion on this i you know, I suspect that there's lots of people maybe that get into a personal conflict. They're frustrated with the timing of when things are happening. There's all those kinds of things. I I would imagine that the the court is sensitive to your, you know, a deceased person's executor choice. And so um, your thoughts, your comments on, you know, this idea of, well, maybe you're frustrated or you don't necessarily like the executor, but that I don't know if that's grounds to have somebody removed, given that that was the deceased person's choice. So 
maybe just a little bit of guidance before somebody you know goes too far into this <laughs> idea of they want to take on a fight of, of what the court actually supports and doesn't support. Yeah, that's a great question. So ultimately, in Alberta, the courts are very much in favor of wanting to um, respect the testator's intentions and wanting to respect the testator's wishes to the extent that they can. So if the testator has listed somebody as executor in their will, um, the court is going to want to give effect to that and respect that um, up to the point where there has been unreasonableness or there has been a breach of fiduciary duty. So um, going to the court and saying, I just, I don't like this person. I'm not comfortable with this person, I have inter interpersonal conflict with this person, those are not going to be sufficient reasons uh, to get that person discharged. Um, you really would have to approach the court with, look, they have um, they have completely acted um, against the interests of the estate. And so we have to be clear that against the interests of the estate is something different than I feel like I've been treated unfairly um, in the distribution because uh, at all times the personal representative takes a neutral position. They're just following instructions in the will. And so if there's something in the will that they're acting on um, that is against perhaps your interests, but is for the best interests of the estate, that's something a court's going to look at too and say, well, this personal representative was acting in accordance with what the testator wanted. So that's also not going to be a sufficient reason to request a discharge. I think that it comes back to whenever we do these topics, regardless of which angle we come at it, um, you know, it's really important, I think, for the people that are uh, setting up the wills mm -hmm. to make sure they're picking the right people. And I think more importantly, and Catherine, your comment on this, um, the, the strategy that we often talk to families about, Rob, is communicate with your family and with those that, uh, you know, you're appointing um, in these very important roles to make sure that, you know, if there is a potential conflict, you might be able to identify that right. early or, and Catherine, to your point, the executor job is not, um, it's not necessarily a privilege to be uh, appointed that, right? It is a responsibility. And sometimes people just don't have the skill sets to do it. And this is where you may fall, you know, you may go down this, this path that you don't otherwise want to go down. So maybe your comments just for people that are, I want to avoid this problem, Catherine, how do I avoid the problem that somebody's going to have to try to remove the appointed people that I've chosen in my will? Okay, so there's two um, things that I would talk to an exec or a testator about when they're appointing somebody is number one, if you number one, make sure that that person is aware they're being appointed, because oftentimes if you talk to that person, they'll let you know, hey, I feel up for this, um, but I might need some support can you point me in some directions uh, where I could get that support? And so at that point, the testator can say, well, here's, uh, you know, my lawyers, here's my ed financial advisors that I work with, here's my accountant, and I've got a really great team that'll support you. Uh, sometimes you, you speak with that person and they say, that's not quite enough. I'm not quite comfortable. And then we go into, well, okay, are there are there some professional services that the executor can utilize? So um, should they be partnered up 
with, for example, a trust company, or if you really are thinking that there's going to be a fight down the road, would it make more sense then to just bypass an individual, either family member or friend, uh, who would be taking on this very big job and leaving that with um, a third party trust company who um, is going to very clearly in all the beneficiaries eyes uh, be a neutral third party and also be professionally equipped to handle the potential conflict down the road. Can't get better advice than that, Catherine. I want to thank you very much. We're going to have to wrap it up before we take a break here. Uh, thanks for uh, for both segments uh, the, this morning. We appreciate it. Pleasure. We've been joined by Catherine Zhang, who's a partner at Welsh LLP here in Calgary. Rob, we've had an interesting, uh, I thought we've had a very interesting show today. Um, and, and the reason I say that, it, it sort of speaks to, in, in many cases, the complexity of the things you have to consider in retirement, um, from the legacy bucket to the income bucket, and then everything in between, health and, 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 and growth. And, you know, I raise that because there's so many people that we see that move into retirement, but things don't necessarily change in terms of their wealth or in their investment mm -hmm. strategy, which, which is interesting because ask yourself the question, you know, as you move into retirement, does your life change? Think about how it would be different if you're not there yet, or what, you know, your perception of what it's going to be versus during your working life. Mm -hmm. Okay. I can tell you, you know, we've been doing this for 20 years. It changes. So if, Life is going to change or does change when you move into retirement and your overall investment and or broader wealth strategy hasn't changed. I'm going to suggest you're doing something wrong. <laughs> I would definitely agree with you. Yeah. And I think it's an interesting point on change because people look forward to the change of retirement, spending more time with family, traveling, doing those things. Yeah. So they're looking forward to a change. Right. But our sometimes unwilling right or uh maybe uneducated as do the the true um roadblocks if you don't change your investment strategy to match those changes in your lifestyle yeah and you know let, let, let's just let's talk a little bit about that so um you know one of the one of the big and often most obvious changes that people will immediately feel is they they've lost a paycheck they you know where'd my monthly paycheck go mm -hmm. scary yeah, and that and that has a can have a a really profound effect on people. But let's just deal with the change, right? Okay, no more paycheck. So now I have to create my own paycheck, right? Now some of that could be created through public pensions. Some, for the fortunate few now, might be augmented with a private pension on top of that. And then there's most of us that will be relying on savings, right. and you have to build a paycheck, a pension plan for yourself, right? Well, that doesn't sound to me like my goal when I was 40 and I was investing just for growth, right? Right. Growth and income, two very different things, aren't they? Well, it's, it's, it's a very simplistic structure. We mm -hmm. talk about structure a lot. Uh, growth, right? Mm -hmm. You can just be invested in the, in the market and, that, and that's it and grow and that's it. Right. When you switch... And you're invested in the market and we get a downturn or we uh, get volatility. Right. <clears throat> is that going to affect your income solution? And see, that's a, I think you make an excellent point. So, so when you were 40, just go back there and you're thinking to yourself, great, the market's turned down. It's scary. Okay. But the right thing to do is just keep adding more money 
buying at the lows, and over time, the averages work out. Okay, that's cool. That's absolutely true. Mm -hmm. But you just raised something really important. But what if I'm no longer adding to my portfolio? I actually have to take from it, withdraw to support my lifestyle. Well, hang on a second. If the market is down and I'm not buying at the lows, I'm selling at the lows. Oh, my. Mm -hmm. That's a big change. All of a sudden, that capital that would otherwise stay in the market and recover and or average down on prices because you're adding new money actually is a permanent loss of capital. Yeah. I'm going to throw out another myth too. And something that we see a lot is people designing their lifestyle off of what their current portfolio income is receiving. Go for it. Go, yeah, go deeper on that. Well, that can be tied to a lot of volatile assets as well. Yeah. Right. So why, why did you work so hard in growing your portfolio to be dictated in volatile income? Right. Right. There should be a structure, right? And the other myth of you need a certain allocation of bonds to, to equity is 60, right. 40 should be probably more determined by your lifestyle needs, not some hypothetical solution. Yeah. That's a good point too, right? Um, we talk lots about rules of thumb, in retirement, you're, you know, you're talking about the asset allocation, just as you age, you should get more conservative, mm -hmm. right? Well, as a rule of thumb, you would say generally, that's correct. But it certainly doesn't speak to the unique circumstances of any particular family. For instance, if you've got, uh, if you've got pensions that cover all of your required day to day living costs, and you've got savings aside from that, ask yourself the question, What's that money for? If the answer to that question is really for estate purposes, well, okay. Now my timeline, if I'm 70 years old, is not 10 or 15 years. It might be 50 years. Mm -hmm. And your investment strategy might be different because of that, right? So you bring up another good point. I think people really have to be very uh, careful about applying general rules of thumb to the specific circumstances that they face, right? You've, things just got more complicated yeah. when you got retired. Or when you retire, right? And that's why we, you know, we've talked about these four buckets. You need to think about where am I getting my income from and how stable is it? And that's not just stocks and bonds, right? There's lots of families that have closely held businesses. Some people have real estate investments. Okay. There's other, you know, there's other things other than just publicly traded stocks and bonds. But where do those assets fit? And that's the thing. When you look at your total wealth strategy, let's now take a look at what we own respectfully, right? Deconstruct what we built while we were in growth phase and reconstruct those assets in a way that supports your, you know, this new phase of mm -hmm. life that we call retirement. Because a real estate asset that you might have owned for growth purposes, okay, might in fact be reallocated into an income bucket as long as you you're comfortable yeah. with the stability of the income that comes yeah. from that, right? Yeah. And so this reallocation and rethinking of it, which is why I said at the you know at the top of this segment, if you haven't changed your your wealth and investment strategy and you've moved into a different stage of life, you're probably doing something wrong, and you just don't want to get caught on the wrong side of a major mistake. Well, let's put put the responsibility of your own pension or income solutions has been put a lot on individuals now with uh, there's a lot less defined benefit pension plans. And right. maybe we can touch on that for a quick second Yep, because a defined benefit plan is providing you income without your knowledge of what's happening behind the scenes. Right. 
So now if you have to develop that on your own, that's a scary situation because hey, these pension plans have a substantial amount of assets, substantial amount of power and expertise in putting that together for you. Right. And yeah, and I, I think that's, that's actually a really interesting point because when you think about a, a pension, CPP, nobody thinks about what's it, what it's invested in. Nobody thinks about the day-to-day volatility, right? Mm-hmm. They're just getting a payment. Um, the beautiful thing about the public markets is you have daily liquidity. The terrible thing about the public markets is you have daily liquidity <laughs> and you see it priced mark to market every single day, right? And so if you, again, if you're sensitive to volatility, okay, um, and all your eggs are in one basket, and whether you are withdrawing because you need the income to support your lifestyle or you're selling because you don't have a paycheck anymore and you're more sensitive to the moves down, those both of those result in permanent losses of capital if you're not very, very careful how you're handling. So how do you how do you overcome that? Change your investment approach to meet the new objectives. Have multiple approaches, one for income, one for growth. If you need something for health, great. And if you're planning for legacy, that can be something different altogether. Okay, listen, we got to make sense of all this because it's complicated. Right? You've just moved into the most complicated period of your life when you go into, into retirement, certainly from a financial perspective. And that's going to be our, our sole focus at our upcoming seminars. You got it. We're going to be holding next one in Calgary, Tuesday, March 5th. This will be at 7 p.m. in person at the Carriage House Inn. Alternatively, you can join us in Lethbridge, Tuesday, March 19th, 7 p.m. in person at the Sandman Signature Signature Hotel. Go to morethanmoneyradio.com to register. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing you all there and uh, answering all of the questions that you may have with respect to this very unique and interesting and complicated time of life we call retirement. On behalf of Rob, myself, and the, uh, the rest of the production crew, I want to thank you for joining us for another edition of More Than Money on QR Calgary. David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli are portfolio managers and investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy in Calgary. The views of David Popovich and Faisal Carmelli do not necessarily reflect those of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Clients are advised to seek advice regarding their particular circumstances from their personal tax and legal advisors. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Woodgundy is a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc., a subsidiary of CIBC and a member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.